a self-described good girl from Arizona, Crystal Harris, became the last wife of the playboy magnate Hugh Hefner, the man whose mission it was to sexually liberate society. That didn't extend to the people around him. The liberation part, he scrutinised all they did, down to bizarre details like stipulating the colour of Crystal's nail polish and lipstick. There was Playboy magazine with its centrefold, Playboy TV with a hit series called The Girls Next Door. She was in that. There were big events all the time and a huge amount of merch in connection with it all. The whole shooting match in its heyday was worth $200 million at a time when that was a pretty big amount of money. When Crystal married Hugh, he was 86. She was 26. The empire Hefner built still exists, although the Hefner family isn't involved in it. The Playboy motto once was entertainment for men, now it's pleasure for all. Playboy seems to sell clothing and it's got an OnlyFans-style presence online. 80% of the employees these days are said to be women. Hugh Hefner's legacy is pretty conflicted in the post-Me Too era. He died before the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke. He does now have an endangered species of marsh rabbit named after him in gratitude for his support of environmental causes. He gave a bit of money to them. Crystal Harris was just one of the many young, usually blonde women who lived with Hefner in the Playboy Mansion, an ivy-covered gothic house in L.A., which became increasingly run down as the years of notorious partying wore on. And she became the woman he needed most. Her book is entitled Only Say Good Things, which is how Hugh Hefner asked Crystal to describe him once he'd died. Only say good things about me. She's stopped doing that. Crystal Hefner, hello. Hi. Surviving Playboy and Finding Myself, the subtitle of the book, Only Say Good Things. What happened to yourself that enticed you into the Playboy Mansion in the first place? Because you were 21 years old, a psychology major, uh, a smart young woman. You were chosen to attend the annual Playboy Halloween party. Why did you apply to be there and what went on, please? Can we start there? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, around that time in 2008, you know, you would see the pages of Playboy and I, I remember thinking, like, these women just look like they have the world at their feet and they're so powerful and I you know I want to be one of them and the whole thing was very enticing um so yeah I submitted my photo and came up to a party at the Playboy Mansion met Hef there and ending ended up moving in shortly after a couple of weeks later I know it was a different era and of course there was glamour attached to the Playboy bunnies there was excitement there was career exposure. But a general question uh, early on, the way you describe your life makes it sound soul-destroying. Oh, yeah, I, th I think it was important to talk about um, my childhood and life leading up to the Playboy Mansion in the book because I think it helps uh, people understand why I made the decisions I made. Yes, exactly. And maybe we could briefly touch on that. And uh, an important part of that is the death of your father. Yeah, yeah, he passed away when I was 12, and he was definitely the rock of the family. We could go into a lot more detail on that, but let's say you were primed, you know, to be wanting attention, publicity, glamour, like a lot of other young women. Can you give us an idea of what sort of glamour 
there actually was. What was a typical sort of day or week in the company of Hugh Hefner and the other women in that mansion? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I came from a world where I, you know, I'd lost my dad, my mom and I had no money. So we were, you know, used to being, I kept myself small. I was a people pleaser and I just thought, okay, now that I met Hef and I'm part of this life, like this is somewhere I could feel that I could truly belong. Like I, I felt like I could finally have a home there, but things weren't really what they seemed in the beginning, it felt like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Hef's Willy Wonka, and you see all this carved wood and this just ornate, beautiful home. And I just thought, oh, this is how the other half lived. This is amazing. I want to be a part of it. But, you know, after a while, it, it, it got hard. And, um, you know, Hef was very controlling of the girls. And Playboy is supposed to be this place of freedom and, you know, freedom of expression. And it was anything but that. Like, I, I felt very trapped while I was there. I don't think we need to talk about what went on behind closed doors, which you have in the book. Uh, it's, all, it's all out there in the book. It's all sure. out there in the book. But And Hefner was a legendary Lothario. But even that sounds soulless, Crystal, in your book. And in fact, something you really tried to avoid. The sex aspect of it, you know, it was... Is something that I that I had to do, and I have wanted it to be a group, a group event, so other girls would join us, and I never wanted to do it by myself because I felt that you know Hef wants this big song and dance and just me on my own. I would feel too much pressure. So yeah, girls would would be up with us and they would be happy to be there, which you know, have had that power over people they wanted to come up and sleep with them. What did they get out of the deal, though? I mean, what were you hoping to get out of it? I know he offered security and a place at the centre of things. You met many famous people. But what did all these women who weren't, who didn't get close enough to Hef, what did they get out of the deal? Did they get anything? Um, I think it was different. You know, some women just wanted to be up there and say they were part of the experience. Some women wanted to be playmates. They wanted to be in the magazine. They felt that that would be a great opportunity. Some people wanted to maybe move in. It, it was all different. But it's not like you earned a fortune. In fact, you don't seem to have earned money except the money you were doled out every Friday in a fairly patronizing sort of way by Hef. It was hard. Hef wanted to give the girls money, but not enough to where they could leave, for sure. Things uh, you write in the book become transactional, very transactional right through your experience. In what sorts of ways can you tell us? Uh, well, Hef wanted us to be there. And, you know, you show up to movie night, you reflect his self-importance back at him, and then you know, then you get get allowance or you, <laughs> you know, we, th we thought it was an honor to be on the Girls Next Door show, but, you know, we didn't get paid anything. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was weird. It was a weird, weird place. <laughs> and you had to keep yourself super slim or else he would tell you that you were putting on pounds. You had to make sure the roots of your hair stayed, you know, bright blonde and there were curfews. You had to get home by a certain time very early on in the evening. There were there were all these rules. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I'm a natural brunette, so when my 
hair starts growing and he would tap me on the head. And one time he told me he had nightmares that my hair was dark. And so I, I had to keep, uh, keep bleaching it and stick to the schedule. It was this like boring cruise ship type of itinerary. And just every, every day, most nights it had to be, I had to be in by 6 PM for movie night. And it was, it was, um, control disguised as a schedule for sure. Control disguised as a schedule. And you were constantly on edge. You had to factor in, I'm quoting from the book, whether I was smiling the right way, whether I had arranged my body correctly, whether I was dressed the way he liked, whether my hair looked right, whether my breasts were perfect enough. So that was every day that was on your mind, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'd go out to fun in the sun, like Sunday fun day. And, you know, Hef would want the girls like jumping on the trampoline or hula hooping or, you know, it's like that that t- toxic male fantasy that's just, you know, I'm guilty for helping like perpetuate that. But, you know, that's that's not things girls want to be doing. Women want to be doing. So, um yeah, it was weird. Yeah, that toxic male fantasy. I mean, Hugh Hefner, I suppose, also legitimized you know the gigantic porn industry, and his liberated sexuality seems to have been anything but. Is that fair? That contrast. I I do wonder now if he helped society or hurt it, because the. Playboy, the Playboy ma- Playboy magazine that came out that he considered t- tasteful then paved way for other magazines that were not as tasteful, that paved way for the Internet and all of these explicit, crazy porn things. So I don't know. Did he help or did he hurt society? Well, after reading your book, uh, I would say the answer is the latter, isn't it? Yeah. The house, the magnificent mansion, uh, the decor actually sounds depressing, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it was depressing. Uh, yeah, everything was old. He didn't really like to modernize anything or keep anything clean. Um, so, yeah, just imagine just thousands and thousands of people coming through party after party and things not getting clean properly. It's it's gross. So you stay there a long time as the number one girlfriend you became and a kind of codependence, to use that old word, sets in. Uh, You know, you're kind of there and you don't want to be there, but you don't want to be without the seeming glamour. I think that's fair. He asks you to marry him. You say yes, and then you get cold feet. Why? Um... I didn't I didn't feel that I was in love with him one and the second one he was filming a special on the marriage it was called Marrying Hef and it was going to air on Lifetime and I found out that the him and the producer were making $800,000 for this 2-hour episode and he brought me paperwork that had a 25 $2500 talent fee I told him I said I know you're making $800,000 and this is kind of a slap in the face like maybe a little something a little more significant. And he said, what are you in this for? And it gave me PTSD to all these interviews that had called me gold digger and all these things. Cause in reality, I never really asked him for much. Um, so yeah, I, I got cold feet. I just felt it was a big disconnect. I felt like I wasn't respected and, and I left. 
Yeah, you didn't get much, did you, um, along the way? At first you got nothing, and then you realised that a couple of the other women were getting uh, given $1,000 a week and $100 bills to make themselves look good all the time. And so you joined in on that. But that most of that money, presumably, was spent on what he wanted it spent on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he wanted us to just buy things with the money that made us look better for him. Yeah. Anyway, you left. You know, to cut the long story short, because we're having to race through a, a pretty detailed book, which is Only Say Good Things, and Crystal Hefner is talking to us. You were the only bride he ever chased after because you came back and did marry him. Why did you go back to him? I went from from there to another toxic relationship, and um, after that, I just I just felt defeated. Uh, Hef Secretary Mary said that he missed me, and I thought, okay, maybe this is my fate. Maybe I'm just meant to be at the mansion, and so I came back. And we infer from that yet that your self esteem actually was pretty low if that was what you thought you could get out of life uh, the oh the, yeah the I mean I didn't <laughs> I didn't have any self-esteem until maybe two years ago if I'm being honest <laughs> um so yeah <laughs> uh he was 86 you were 26 when you got married uh despite your dislike of the life and all those you know nightly games and odd routines that he seemed to really want his life to be despite your dislike of it you were also drawn to it you guarded your position you saw off any interlopers um because you were trapped you write what was your what were your feelings around being a playboy centerfold because that's something else that he kind of rewarded you with yeah, I mean, when I became a centerfold, I, I made $25,000 and I thought, wow, like, that's a lot of money <laughs> when I was, you know, 22 years old. And that, that kind of kicked off my savings. So I was I was grateful for that. Um, I thought it was cool having a, a centerfold. But looking back, thinking about, oh, the fans, the fans that I created from from that, it's it's like, oh, these people are just like looking at naked photos of me. That's, that's gross. And like, <laughs> looking back... It's something that I regret, and I've worked diligently since then to try and remove any naked photo of myself from the internet. Yes. I've paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for a company to help me remove nude photos. Yeah, I saw you'd done that. But earlier than that, you know, when you looked at all the likes and clicks on the photos you had online, you'd nevertheless got a kind of frisson, a thrill of being validated that was part of the problem of the whole playboy bunny experience wasn't it absolutely that's so true uh when i was there i would post um photos and bikinis and you know showing my body and i was completely contributing to the misogyny there and 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 making money from it you know i would i would post ads about like skinny bunny tea and teeth whitening and all of these things and i was contributing to that culture and you know it took growing up a bit and realizing that that it's wrong and i contributed to this and and now i'm i'm completely the opposite you know i it, it's very rare that you'll see anything revealing on my social media and you know misogyny angers me i'll turn off a movie if it if it has it in it and yeah i've I've gone the other way now 
What does it say about Hefner that he needed all this kind of faux attention from all these young women? Uh, I mean, this was a legitimate business. It was an empire. On the face of things, nothing against the law was going on. And yet, for him, there was something terribly weird going on, you'd think. Did did you see it like that? How did you see him? Because you had studied psychology. Yeah, yeah. I'm At first... I was just sucked in and I would hear him do interviews and he would say, oh, uh, you know, the sound of young women's laughter like keeps me young. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And you know, I, I'm like feeding into this. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's awesome. And how, that's me. <laughs> but but thinking back, um, I realized that he is somebody who tried to fill this void in his soul with this lifestyle he created and in that that void never got filled and some people do it with you know gambling alcohol shopping you know he did it with sex and women to to try and feel something in his soul and it never worked from when i met him until the end of his life he was this like sad lost little boy and People are people come up to him and say, "Oh, you're the man, yeah, Hugh." And in real life, I'm like, I, I this is someone I feel sorry for because they're they're just a, a broken person that that never was healed. Yeah, that's so interesting. And everything he got very fond of you towards the end because he needed you. Uh, but everything you said to him had to reflect his glory. You tried to tell him about your life early on, and he just wasn't really interested, was he? No, he was only interested in himself. He was addicted to Viagra and painkillers, you say in the book. You told the New York Times, I must have been brainwashed or something. And at one point you escape the mansion, but you discover you have a kind of Stockholm syndrome, wasn't it? And you return. And we think, I think we know why from the conversation we've had so far, you kind of missed being at the center of things. Uh, just scooting on a bit you move into a caretaker role as his health declines and then he dies uh and you're very good to him at the end but then he dies and you're still brainwashed aren't you what what changed that i i mean yeah i was i felt sorry for him i tried to help him the best i could in the last stages of his life um after he passed away i couldn't even leave the house for like six weeks but I think it, it took time and, and space to really realize what what had happened. You know, I, I, I didn't understand. And, and now we have terms for, for what I didn't understand then. You know, now narcissism is talked about a lot. Boundaries are talked about a lot. Um, you know, pull, as we pull away from this super misogynistic culture, things are getting better. You realize how bad it was. So it, it took time and space to really understand um, what I went through and finding myself in more toxic relationships after that. And just just knowing that I needed to heal. And I think I have healed a lot and writing the book uh, even more so has, has helped me in that process. He wouldn't have survived the Me Too era, would he? Absolutely not. No. You know, it's one thing for him to have maintained for the brand, you know, a pretense of a partying playboy life inside this crumbling mansion full of black mould and in need of new carpets and furniture. So uh, the image was naughty fun. 
but it's, it's, it's so fascinating that the reality behind that pretense is just the opposite. It's just toxic, isn't it? Yeah, it was a toxic place. It was a toxic, strange place. I feel that it was some kind of social experiment in our culture that will never be repeated again. Yeah. And yeah, it was weird. And I ended up somehow being a part of it. And but I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's over. What do you do now, mainly? I have real estate projects. I have a farm in Hawaii. And I just try and live a a quiet life. You know, I'm not big into the Hollywood scene. I never really have been, you know, like I didn't come to the mansion wanting to be like an, an actor or anything like that. And um, yeah, I just, I just want a nice, quiet, peaceful life. But you healthy. want, you wanted to be on a pedestal though. You wanted to be seen and you wanted to have your life justified as it were. That was part of the attraction. Yeah, I think for so long and as a child, I, I, felt, I felt small. I felt that everyone was better than me. And so, yeah, I, I felt that that was a place that I could feel like I had some power or belong somewhere. And, and that's how I ended up there. You haven't fully recovered, I imagine, from the whole Playboy experience because your time there was so much in the limelight and you were so committed to it for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. By the time I left, it was a third of my life. And so um, I'm sure it shaped me and affected my brain in ways that are just, you know, cellular at this point. So I don't know how much I can reverse, but I'm I'm trying. Obviously, you are. And there was the hit show you mentioned, the hit TV show, The Girls Next Door. And you were on that. And a handful of the women like you became well known through that. But that also seems to have been a devil's bargain. Uh, for example, later on, you almost die during cosmetic surgery, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, well, I had my implants removed because they made me sick. Um, and after that, I had a fat transfer surgery where they, you know, go around your whole body and take fat and then put it into into the breasts. And um, I lost half the blood in my body after that surgery. Okay. Towards the end of the book, you say, a promise of sexual liberation that was always a lie, a glamorous mirage that turned out to be a trap. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I looked him up on Wikipedia, and what do you think of this summation on it uh, from the English feminist Julie Bindle that Hefner, quote, caused immeasurable damage by turning porn and therefore the buying and selling of women's bodies into a, a legitimate business. We touched on this before, didn't we? You'd kind of agree with that. I agree 100%. Yeah. The ultimate playboy. Did did he end up the ultimate sad old man? Was he, was he frightened at the end? Was he regretful, proud, none of the above? What was he? He was sad. He cried a lot. You know, he was... In my opinion, he was just a lost little boy mm. that, that never healed. You know, I, I'd like to think maybe toward the end of his life, he, um, you know, realized some things. Um, I stopped dyeing my hair. I took out my implants. I started becoming myself and he, he still wanted me around and maybe even started respecting me more. So maybe toward the end, he learned a lesson or two, I would hope. What an experience to go through. Just to quote once more, 
I loved him, but I loved him the way someone might love their kidnapper after 10 years of being with them every day. I felt sorry for him that he didn't know how to love, how to actually see another person, or how to really connect in a meaningful way. The man thought to be the greatest lover in the world never knew how to love at all. In the end, it's just sad. Sorry to throw your words back at you, but I, that was quite notable when I saw that, I thought. Yeah, yeah. You, true. You've never gone back. You you never will. To see I haven't gone to, back. to see the place. I I do know the new owner, but I I haven't been there. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe one day he's he's remodeled the place, so maybe he's changed it so much that it wouldn't be that recognizable. But but we'll see. Maybe one day. Did you ever think of ditching the Hefner name, going back to Crystal House? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's it's something that I have thought about and want to do, yes. It's interesting. Now you you can say whatever you want, Crystal. You don't have to say any good things. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know I'm still, I'm still uh, a little bit in shock about that. I'm like, oh, wow, I can, I can just tell the truth. Even though the truth is hard to hear for some, for some people, it, it's the truth. What's the life that lies ahead for you? You know, you, you're in real estate. I don't think you much admire Los Angeles anymore. You say that in the book at one point. Yeah. So, so do, you, do you have a plan from here on? Because you didn't really have a plan when you went into that mansion. Uh, do you have one now? I think my plan is to enjoy my freedom and spend more time in Hawaii, I, on my farm there, spend time with my dog, and then, you know, maybe one day get married to somebody that's kind and caring and have a healthy relationship. That's the goal. Financially, actually, you've been saved. Have I, I, I presume you saved yourself because you signed a prenup that gave you pretty much nothing. But at the end, I think he allotted the small fund to you out of gratitude. You've managed to parlay it into success in many ways in the eyes of the world. I mean, if you hadn't written this book, people would think you were actually a successful woman who had done okay out of the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that I was lucky to, to think about that. And, you know, I started in real estate kind of in secret while I was at the mansion. And by the time I left there, I had eight homes of my own. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> That's right. Not many people could actually do that under those circumstances. Thank yeah. you very much for your time talking with us uh, about the book, and uh, well done. Was there pain in writing it? Yeah, it was hard. I think the hardest topics in the book are sex and death, and uh, some of the chapters I can't even read back. The last final part of the book is hard for me to read without crying. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a tough, tough, tough process. You know, life being full of paradox as well. You say you were never in love with Hugh Hefner. I think we get that picture really early on, uh, but you kind of ended up loving him in a strange way, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did. Um, absolutely, I did. I did have love for him, and I did care about him. Thank you very much, as I said, for talking to us and all the best uh, with the future, Crystal. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me.